Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the indictment today of Hunter Biden for allegedly making false statements on an ATF form and illegally possessing a handgun, with three counts heading for a possible criminal trial for Biden's son in 2024 in the midst of his father's campaign for re-election. Joining us is David Shapiro, a distinguished lecturer and coordinator of the Fraud Examination and Financial Forensics Program at New York's John Jay College of Criminal Justice at the City University of New York. He worked as an FBI special agent and is the co-author of How They Got Away With It, White Collar Criminals and the Financial Meltdown. Then we'll look into the grey area between what is illegal and what is corrupt and speak with Sarah Shays who has served as a special assistant on corruption to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as well as having advised commanders of the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan. She has been a reporter for National Public Radio from Paris, covering Europe and the Balkans, and is the author of The Punishment of Virtue, Inside Afghanistan After the Taliban, and Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens Global Security. Her latest book is On Corruption in America and What is at Stake?, and we'll discuss her article at The Atlantic, not illegal, but clearly wrong. Then finally, we'll assess the looming strike by the United Auto Workers against the big three automakers as the deadline tonight of 11.59pm Eastern Standard Time fast approaches. Joining us is Sylvia Allegretto, a labor economist at the University of California, Berkeley, and a senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. She has co-authored several editions of The State of Working America, and her research interests include long-term unemployment, family budgets, teacher pay, public employee compensation, low-wage labor markets, inequality, and minimum wages. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now, David Shapiro, a distinguished lecturer and coordinator of the Fraud Examination and Financial Forensics Program at New York's John Jay College of Criminal Justice at the City University of New York. He worked as an FBI special agent and is the co-author of How They Got Away With It, White Collar Criminals and the Financial Meltdown. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Shapiro. Thank you, Ian. It's wonderful to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, David. And what do you make of the uh, indictments today? Hunter Biden indicted on three counts for allegedly making false statements on an ATF form and illegally possessing a handgun. And just to give a little bit of background, the U.S. attorney, David Weiss, had uh, already had a plea bargain deal that collapsed on July before the Delaware judge. And subsequent to that, the attorney general made uh, David Weiss a special counsel. Of course, David Weiss is a Republican holdover from the Trump administration who uh, Biden decided not to fire, even though 
it was his prerogative to fire all of Trump's uh, U.S. attorneys. So a bit of irony there, wouldn't you say, David? Well, uh, uh, certainly that, that's one way to uh, look at the position now of, of Mr. Weiss. There, there does indeed, indeed seem to be a crossover of uh, presidential administrations. But do you think that this decision on his part, because he was the one who negotiated the plea deal, and now he's taking a harder line, has he done so, do you think, because of pressure? Oh, and un- un- undoubtedly, undoubtedly done solely on account of pressure. And, and that's, a, one may argue, taints the sort of process in itself. I mean, just the fact that Mr. Weiss was appointed as a, as a, a special counsel, uh, it, it, what appears to be a violation of the requirement that it be uh, someone outside the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, would also be something somebody could argue about. Um, I, 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 you know, th- this is troublesome in many ways, and I'm, I'm sure we don't want to go into everything. But the the fact that the tax uh, issues have have lapsed and the jurisdiction uh, statute of limitations is passed on that, uh, it it does not indicate a very aggressive prosecution, which which may very which may be fair under the circumstances. But it certainly seems arguable that that this is not how one would pursue. Uh, someone that one wanted to exact the maximum punishment from. And don't get me wrong, uh, Mr. Masters, I'm not saying that one should, that a prosecutor should seek maximum punishment, but the fact that this is done so piecemeal by someone that really shouldn't even be controlling the matter is, is you know, it gives pause, gives, gives reason to pause. Well, the actual charge, though, in terms of him filling out the uh, ATF form to buy a handgun, in which he checked off a box where, you know, he didn't admit to having a drug problem. And uh, I think in his case it was marijuana, at least marijuana is specified, I think, in the form along with other drugs. And, of course, something like a fifth of Americans use marijuana. So isn't it likely that most people that fill out that form don't admit that they smoke marijuana? Otherwise they wouldn't get there, be able to buy the gun. So... It doesn't seem like the most effective way to prevent dangerous people from getting weapons. Well, yeah, that, when you're depending on self-disclosures like that, yes, I agree. I'm sure there are many people that have used marijuana, didn't disclose it, and obtained firearms. So in his case, he actually wrote about it to Hunter Biden in a biography about his troubles with addiction and particularly in the case of uh, crack cocaine, he actually wrote about purchasing this cult uh, revolver and his girlfriend objected to it. He only only had it for 11 days and she apparently tossed it in a dumpster. So what's your sense, since you've covered a lot of serious white-collar crime, where does this relate in the lexicon of white-collar crime? Well, I think a good way of analyzing the seriousness or social harm of, of any allegation of wrongdoing is to see whether somebody else was seriously injured, grievous bodily damage, uh, uh, impairment to reputation, theft of lots of money. Uh, and, and these are not those kinds of wrongdoing. Uh, these, I hesitate to call them victimless crimes, but, but there is no one you can point to and said he or she is bleeding and dying or injured 
on account of what uh, Mr. Hunter Biden is accused of. And that's always that's that's always bothered me, because one thing uh, we prosecutors always shout about is, gee, we wish we had more resources. If we had more resources, we could you know, we could focus on on much more wrongdoing and, and put bad people behind jail and yada, yada, yada. But it, that kind of reasoning is sort of impaired when one looks at the, the prosecution of crimes that um, are perhaps a lot less serious than others. So you got to remember there's an opportunity cost to pursuing Hunter Biden uh, because there's a fixed amount of money. There are a fixed amount of prosecutors. There are a fixed amount of investigators. There's a fixed amount of court time. So you 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 know you you pick and choose, and to your question, is this is this a valid exercise of prosecutorial and investigative power? I've been asking that kind of question, wanting to bring it to the forefront for a long time. The issues of prosecutorial discretion and investigative discretion are woefully opaque. So is it entirely up to the individual prosecutor? Is that what you mean? Yes, uh, yes, it is. And and that kind of and, and, and that, you know, and somebody's got to make a decision along the line. So I'm not saying that the buck doesn't stop with anybody. What I'm saying is there's not enough public information so that one can assess. Oh, yes, I see why Mr. Hunter Biden was charged. There are these ramifications. There are these compromises and there were these other incidents that were uh, even that were less serious and they were not charged. And, and all the other more serious allegations were pursued to the fullest. There's no way somebody wanting to get a sense of the fairness and integrity of the public prosecutor can actually do that. It's all it's all behind, if you will, closed doors. And there, these are these are official secrets. Uh, on the level of official secrets. But surely prosecutors know what the standard and the records are in terms of what previous charges and, and, and convictions have led to in various crimes and cases. And in the case of not filling out this form correctly, there's got to be precedent there. So aren't there guidelines based upon previous cases? Well, yeah, there are guidelines, but that's all they are, are guidelines. And mm -hmm. guidelines are not, they're not adequate, they're not sufficient, unless you have an enforcement mechanism to make sure, number one, that the guidelines are sound, that is, they're well-designed, that the guidelines are obeyed, that the guidelines make sense in practice, because things do change, and sometimes a particular crime becomes more important than it used to be, right, because of some some epidemics of some sort, like, for example, take the drug fentanyl that's being added to who knows what and creating a lot of addiction problems, a lot of overdoses, a lot of deaths. And that's the kind of thing that, well, maybe if you looked at it, well, we didn't prosecute fentanyl-tainted uh, drugs much in the past, but now it's become a priority. So in, indeed, there are reasons to change prosecutorial policy, and th that's, with, that's within their discretion. But the, the, this becomes extremely important when we're talking about such, such politically exposed persons because there's a public trust at stake, especially with the concomitant in, indictments of, of Mr. Trump. You know, people are yelling, uh, they're picking on Trump. It's malicious prosecution. And, and then, you know, well, we have Hunter Biden who doesn't seem to be getting uh, a heavy treatment. 
And, you know, is it a token charge? Is it not? The only way to answer these questions fairly is for the public to be able to look at the underlying data. And, you know, Ian, you know, you, you may be right. Everything may be working as smoothly and justly as human beings can create. But we don't know that, do we? Do we want to be where we, can, where we have to trust but not verify? I mean... But, David, we will have a trial, and, and it's not working out for Biden, because uh, the president, because he'll be running for re-election in the midst of the trial, which will happen in, next year in 2024. It won't be televised because it's a, a federal case, right? But it still uh, would be at least an opportunity to do exactly what you just said, find out what all the facts are. And in the previous plea deal... Did, wasn't he going to get a diversion? Didn't they think it was not serious enough to warrant a yes. conviction in jail? That 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 is correct. And what has changed but that then? What has changed was the judge says this looks like a sweetheart deal. I mm-hmm. can't do this. And so what what the procedure was was to keep the same prosecutor on, change his title to special counsel, uh, which he shouldn't have been. And let him control the prosecutorial process. Now, these things, again, uh, and I'm not saying that they're necessarily wrong. I'm saying that we need broader context, more evidence and data so that we can say, yeah, this is not controlling a sweetheart deal. Yeah, we tried to slip one by the judge, but she was just too smart. So we're going to do plan B, but still have it under the control of Mr. Weiss. Now, we don't. We want to know whether that's that's a good thing. Certainly, this is not overall a good thing for for, for Mr. Joe Biden, the, the president. Uh, but the question may be, it's not a good thing. But is it is it a seriously bad thing, or is it a minor bump in the road? Right. I mean, these are strategic issues. But I, my understanding, there, David, is that the federal judge in Wilmington, Delaware, who heard the plea deal case in July. She questioned whether the two sides had very different understanding of these agreements. I thought that was the basis of it, that the prosecutors thought it meant one thing and and Hunter Biden's lawyers thought it meant another. And she just, was it entirely that she thought it was too much of a sweet out deal or was it because the prosecution and the defense uh, had different understandings about what the deal was? Yeah, that, that, that is a ter- terrific observation. What what the judge laid out, though, was, is Mr. Hunter Biden subject to other charges? Are there other investigations occurring? That was a very dangerous question to put to the prosecutor, because if he answers no, that rules that potentially rules out a lot of stuff, a lot of evidence coming to fore, a lot of uh, bank records coming to fore. And he doesn't want to be trapped into into just locking all of the possible charges against Mr. Hunter Biden as as being done away with by that plea deal. So when that question came up, then then he had to say the prosecutor had to say, no, 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 this doesn't represent we are still we're still conducting further investigations. Right. That's sort of what what he said. And the defense attorney I forget if it was a man or a woman, but but doing his or her job properly said, well, in that case, uh, we're going to wait. We're going to pass. You know, we're, this is not this is not for us, which was proper advice. So the, then sometimes we don't know what's happening until 
later incidents occur to shed light on the prior incidents. So here with the indictment now brought against Mr. Hunter Biden, we don't really see anything much new. So where are the potential other investigations? Was the prosecutor serious about that or not? Uh, we don't know. But what, what we have now, the only difference we have now is that it's, it's a, an indictment, not an information, right? And we have that Mr. Biden, Mr. Hunter Biden now uh, seemingly is exposed to a more serious set of charges, right? But we don't have him ma uh, making any, any deal. We don't have him actually committting to these uh, purportedly more serious charges. We right, just have he, an indictment. But David, he ha but he has a more serious prosecutor in David Weiss, who is no longer a U.S. attorney. He's now a special counsel with greater powers and the, and the ability to investigate a lot more than he had before. Doesn't that pose a greater damage? Even, even if the, the tax charges have passed a statute of limit, limitations, um, he still, uh, David Weiss can look into a whole lot more of Hunter Biden's activities with more uh, power as a special counsel, can't he? Well, uh, yes, he can, and these are all you know very open ended. But but let me let me throw it back on you because your questioning is is very good. It's poignant. But the the, the problem that still exists is the fact that it's Mr. Weiss controlling it. Mr. Weiss does not have statutory authority to be special counsel because he was from he still is employed by the U.S. Attorney's Office. He, he is not eligible to be employed as special counsel. So if all this occurred, right, this, every, everything was the same except the prosecutor bringing this indictment against Mr. Hunter Biden was Jane Smith. Then I say, Mr. Masters, you probably have a very strong argument. But we don't have that. We have it still controlled by Mr. David Weiss, the same person in control before. Reminds me of the great Who song. The who's won't get fooled again. Meet the new boss. Same as the old boss. So what about the fact, though, that the Fifth Circuit, for example, there's a case before that that basically is going to remove the very charge that Hunter Biden is charged with, saying that it's, it, it's actually um, illegal or it's an overreach on the part of the federal government to ask those kind of questions about whether or not you've had drug use, particularly prior drug use, and they've brought a case of somebody that was denied ability to purchase a firearm, arguing that, that this person hasn't touched drugs for a long time, and therefore it was unfair. In other words, in many southern states, what Hunter Biden is being charged with is, is no longer illegal. Well, now we're back again to the, the comparative unseriousness of the charge. Unserious in that it is a crime in potential, more so than actual. In other words, we're trying to prevent crazy drug-addled people from buying firearms and, and losing their minds and doing all sorts of evil, insane things. Um, that did not occur, fortunately, with, with uh, Mr. Hunter Biden. Um, so the fact remains, yeah, is, is it perhaps a law that doesn't belong there. I mean, those are strong arguments. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue the merits of the law. We have, we have plenty of, of laws on the books that punish uh, in the scheme of things, 
uh, uh, crimes of very low level, maybe even what should be misdemeanors or even, you know, very low level offenses. And is, is this one of them? Maybe so. Maybe given the culture of our society, given the culture of the South, given the, the U.S. Constitution, the Second Amendment and everything else. Yeah, maybe this is probably not a great law. Maybe this is a law that's violated much in silence with people lying about their, their marijuana use. And that, I, Ian, I've got, I've got no counter arguments for that. Oh, no worries. Well, <laughs> I thank you for joining us, though, David. I appreciate it. <laughs> Ian, it's been a pleasure, and uh, you know where to find me. Good luck uh, with you. All the best. And again, I'll yep. be speaking with David Shapiro, who's a distinguished lecturer and coordinator of the Fraud Examination and Financial Forensics Program at New York's John Jay College of Criminal Justice at the City University of New York. He worked as an FBI special agent and is the co-author of How They Got Away With It, White Collar Criminals and the Financial Meltdown. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the gray area between what is illegal and what is corrupt. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sarah Shays, who has served as a special assistant on corruption to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as well as having advised commanders of the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan. She has been a reporter for National Public Radio from Paris, covering Europe and the Balkans, and is the author of The Punishment of Virtue, Inside Afghanistan After the Taliban, and Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens Global Security. Her latest book is On Corruption in America and What is at Stake, and she has an article at The Atlantic, Not Illegal but Clearly Wrong. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sarah Shays. Thank you, Ian. So, Sarah, is what happened today to Hunter Biden uh, being indicted now on three charges after a plea deal had collapsed and then uh, subsequent to that, the Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed the same U.S. attorney who was a holdover from the Trump administration to become special counsel. And clearly, he's been under pressure to get tougher. And now Hunter Biden has been indicted on three counts. And it's likely that the case will be heard sometime during next year when his father, President Biden, is running for re-election. So what's your broad take on what's happened here? Does it seem to you to be serious since you've studied and followed and investigated corruption all around the world? Uh, I think there are two points to disentangle, Ian. One is to dispense with the, you know, whataboutism, to dispense with the false equivalency. Um, and that will be difficult to do in the current political climate. It is absolutely clear that not only do Hunter Biden's actions not compare to former President Donald Trump's alleged uh, wrongdoing. But even more clearly, you know, Biden's, President Biden's potential wrongdoing is just not even in the same 
realm, not even in the same universe. That being said, it is very clear to me that Hunter Biden was mixed up with a corrupt and criminal crowd. His main business associate, uh, Devin Archer, has been convicted, uh, not in a case to do with Hunter Biden, but a separate case of fraud in um, dispensing monies to American Native American um, tribes. Uh, the people that the people who were gathered around by Hunter Biden and Devin Archer are just, you know, anyone who knows anything about corruption around the world, you just have to look at the identities of these people to know that they got rich by looting their countries. And, you know, it's no point in going into all the names, but, you know, you have a person who became the richest woman in Russia while her husband was the mayor of Moscow um, and, you know, was a was basically identified by, by the local uh, U.S. embassy staff as being at the top of a vast pyramid, you know, of corruption and organized crime. That's one. You know, then you've got the two Kazakh guys. Anyone who takes a look at Kazakhstan um, and knows how that country has functioned basically since the collapse of the Soviet Union can immediately pick up who these guys are, including one who was the head of intelligence and then prime minister under, you know, a notorious dictator. And then you have and then you have Bursima, the Ukrainian energy company that, again, manifestly um, became a, an item by looting the energy resources of uh, that, that rightfully belong to the Ukrainian people. So what I'm saying is Hunter Biden's business model is clearly something that people in the political party that is proud of standing for integrity should not be defending. And frankly, it's a business model that President Joe Biden should have number one, warned his son off of. I don't know if he did that or not. And number two, should never have gotten anywhere near it. He should not have been going to dinner parties, glad-handing this collection of kleptocrats. Um, and, you know, he should not really have been allowing his son to, how to put it, um, uh, basically make hay on the appearance of influence and access to power that he clearly was not actually wielding. It's quite clear that President Biden, as vice president, never did, you know, provide any of the, you know, policy outcomes that Bursimo was looking for. But nevertheless, Biden was trading on his father's name and his father had to know that. Come on, like he knows how this stuff goes. And so I just think that it's important to disentangle these two strands. This is not by any means equivalent to the wrongdoing of which Trump is, you know, accused in more than 90 indictment, accounts of indictment. Um, but it's not okay. Well, in the case of Burisma, though, and when Vice President Biden was in Ukraine, 
trying to get them to clean up their act because the country's been so debilitated by corruption and still to this day it has problems. And it was... (laughs) worse than sending mixed signals. On the one hand, he's telling the country to clean up their act. On the other hand, the fact that his son, who has no experience in energy uh, and gas and oil pipelines, etc., is there on the board of this corrupt organization, that sent a signal to the Ukrainian people that Vice President Biden was, uh, as they say in the old Western movies, talking with a forked tongue. Uh, exactly. And I think you've made a really important point there, Ian, because it's not only the Ukrainian people, most importantly, it's the Ukrainian corrupt officials who were looking at Biden's actions for the reality of the message being sent. And I say that not because of any intimate um, experience with Ukraine at that particular moment, but because I experienced a parallel situation, not nearly as egregious, in Afghanistan, where um, I saw that the lack of seriousness with which the United States was addressing the corruption problem really allowed it to flourish. And secondly, I watched President Karzai send two opposite signals, just of the kind that you're talking about, to his own kleptocratic network um, on the one hand and to Western officials on the other. And he did this in a single speech by proclaiming how important it was to have new laws in Afghanistan. It really wasn't that important to arrest people. What Afghanistan really needed was better anti-corruption laws. And he made this speech flanked by two notorious uh, war criminals and and corrupt uh, power, you know, uh, strongmen, let's say, who had control of a couple of provinces. And so what Karzai was doing at that time was basically appeasing the Westerners who love words and laws. But he was making his real message known through his actions. And those are, you know, again, it's a cliche, but they speak stronger than words. And so there's just no way that this juxtaposition of Hunter Biden's seat on Bursima's board and Joe Biden's ostensible anti-corruption positions as uh, vice president were not in conflict with each other and were not basically canceling each other out. Um, And so I think that while it seems almost certain that there is no actual criminal wrongdoing that is um, pocketing of money, material gain from the use of uh, public office on the part of President Joe Biden, it is clear that this juxtaposition totally undermined U.S. anti-corruption policy. And Hunter Biden's partner, Devin Archer, of course, recently testified to the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability, led by James Comer, who has been promising all kinds of sensational headlines will be delivered in terms of Hunter Biden and his laptop, which has become something of an obsession on the part of Comer and Jim Jordan, neither of whom have really delivered much. But now, of course, this trial of Hunter Biden taking place during the election season in itself will be damaging to President Biden. But what came up in that hearing when they kept asking Archer about his dealings with 
with uh, Hunter Biden and how much uh, President Biden was involved in the various phone calls and dinners, etc., it gets into the grey area that you've studied, the grey area between what's illegal and what's corrupt. Just to quote from your article in The Atlantic, Archer says, People send signals, Archer told the House Committee, and those signals are basically used as currency. And then he came to this chilling assessment. And that's kind of how a lot of DC operators and foreign tycoons work. So he's kind of describing Nigeria on the Potomac, is he not? Yes, uh, and uh, here's the point, is that over the last, since about 1987, a series of Supreme Court decisions and to my dismay, they are not split decisions. They are all but one unanimous decisions, have been narrowing and narrowing and narrowing and narrowing the legal definition of corruption in this country to the point that basically, you know, if you were actually successfully prosecuted for corruption, you'd probably deserve going to jail just for sheer stupidity. You know, I mean, it's just, it is so narrow what qualifies now under US law as corruption, that there's this vast area between what is not wrong and what is not legal. Um, And that's the area that it seems to me Hunter Biden has been operating in. And I believe that, that, you know, there is a lot that we could do in this country to narrow that zone. And I think there's a lot that President Biden himself could be doing um, that that he hasn't. And I guess that's the disappointment for me. Again, I'm not trying to make a comparison between the Biden's wrongdoing, potential wrongdoing, and Trump's wrongdoing. But If you are the party that brands yourself as the party of truth and integrity, you've got a higher bar. Being better than Trump isn't good enough, you know? And and the point is that, that these two strands that I've tried to hold separate in this conversation, the, the, the wrongness of the Hunter Biden business, business model versus the likely illegality of a tremendous amount of former President Trump's behavior, um, those two strands are gonna get hopelessly muddied in the political environment that we're gonna move into. The whole point of these hearings is not to actually find adjudicable evidence of criminal behavior on the part of the Bidens. It's uh, very unclear, you know, apart from drug use and weapons possession, and tax evasion potentially, but it's it, there is no evidence, as you pointed out so far, of the corrupt exchange of an official government action for material gain on the part of Vice President or President Biden. However, the point of these hearings and this impeachment proceedings is to muddy the waters is to make it, is to provide fodder for all of the obfuscation and confusion that political operatives are going to cast into um, the electoral process. And I facetiously referred to Washington, D.C. as Nigeria on the Potomac, and 
as you point out in your article, Sarah Shays, at The Atlantic, you have investigated corruption in Nigeria itself, where $1 billion per month disappeared in oil revenues before they reached the federal treasury. So clearly we're not quite there. But if you look at uh, the way Saudi Arabia throws money around in Washington, D.C., to buy favours, and now they're doing a lot of sports washing. There was actually hearing about it yesterday on Capitol Hill about the Saudi Gulf uh, LIV, and we know that Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, was given $2 billion from the Saudi uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund against the advice of the those uh, stewards of that fund. But MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, demanded that they pay... Jared Kushner, $2 billion for whatever after they'd already given a billion dollars to Steve Mnuchin. So, I mean, in terms of who's a successful grifter, uh, uh, surely Hunter Biden is a piker compared to uh, Jared Kushner. Yeah, it's pocket change compared to Jared Kushner. We don't even really know what Ivanka Trump might have garnered in terms of benefits, Stephen Mnuchin, as you point out, you know, and these are Mnuchin in particular, I looked into in uh, on corruption in America. And it was really astonishing. Actually, also, um, Justin Kennedy, Justice Anthony Kennedy's son, you know, really was very involved in the uh, conduct at Deutsche Bank that helped lead up to uh, the crash of 2008. And, you know, the bank was sanctioned for that. No individuals were, of course. Um, but there's the son of the justice who conveniently resigned offering um, then President Trump to Supreme Court or a second Supreme Court seat uh, to fill after having filled one. So that's one. Then Mnuchin. I mean, Mnuchin is one of these classic vulture capitalists who snapped up quote, distressed assets in the wake of the 2008 crash, and then, you know, made a killing off of them, often by, as did Jared Kushner, both of them were involved in this kind of thing, in particular, the types of rental properties that we heard about later, where people were being wrongfully evicted, where illegal fees were being charged, all of this kind of thing. So you're right, the scale of the grifting is just not even comparable uh, b- between the two. But I'd like to actually focus a little bit further or return to this facetious, you say, comparison between the United States and Nigeria and say, you know, in countries, in developing countries that I examined uh, with a sort of corruption lens, um, a lot of this type of behavior is out there in the open kind of poking you in the eye. But let's just take like one of the standard ways that corrupt networks um, enrich themselves off of the public purse is through procurement. So I just would invite you to consider um, a few U.S. industries such as finance, defense, pharmaceutical, Uh, fossil fuel. And, you know, let's take a look at what has transpired while the executives and shareholders of the main uh, 
corporations in those industries have gotten just off the charts wealthy. Let's see. We've lost two. We, we've 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 lost two wars. We suffered an economic crash. You know, approximately approximately the equivalent almost of the Great Depression, which cost as many lives in suicides as the 9/11 terrorist attacks cost in, you know, the collapse of the buildings and the crash of the airplanes. Um, we've had a COVID pandemic similar to the so-called Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, you know, in which, again, a couple of pharmaceutical companies have benefited from essentially vast amounts of guaranteed federal money first for R&D and then in the purchase of the resulting products at market or above market prices. Um, and we also have a climate crisis that is, you know, threatening the, I want to say, the configuration of life on earth as we know it. And so you have these industries that have been responsible for absolutely massive, massive, massive damage to the United States and countries around the world that are closely woven into the US government structure, whose personnel cycle in and out of government. When they're in government, they often rewrite the rules to benefit these industries, and they throw US government money, like the COVID you know, R&D money and purchase of vaccines, or like the half a trillion dollars that ended up going to BlackRock, the money manager, to run the US Treasury's bond buying, emergency bond buying program during COVID. That was a no bid contract that was signed with not the Treasury, not the Federal Reserve, uh, but a private company uh, established in the secrecy jurisdiction of Delaware by the Fed. So you have a completely opaque contract with no bid contract with a single company to handle half a trillion dollars of, of taxpayer money. Um, and then if you look at the personnel of BlackRock and the Fed and Treasury, you see it's like a superhighway that goes in a loop. So I guess what I'm trying to suggest here is that this sounds like a shocking or provocative thing to say, but based on my comparative research, the structure of corruption in the United States of America today, more or less regardless of political party, is not that dissimilar from the structure of corruption in Nigeria. Well, Sarah Shays, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it very much. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Sarah Shays, who has served as a Special Assistant on Corruption to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as well as having advised commanders of the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan. She's been a reporter for National Public Radio from Paris, covering Europe and the Balkans, and is the author of The Punishment of Virtue, Inside Afghanistan After the Taliban, and Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens Global Security. And her latest book is On Corruption in America and What is at Stake? 
and she has an article at The Atlantic, not illegal, but clearly wrong. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back assessing the looming strike by the United Auto Workers against the big three automakers as the deadline tonight of 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time fast approaches. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sylvia Allegretto, a labor economist and senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. She's co-authored several editions of The State of Working America, and her research interests include long-term unemployment, family budgets, teacher pay, public employees' compensation, low-wage labor markets, inequality, and minimum wages. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sylvia Allegretto. Good to be here again. Well, thanks for joining us, Sylvia. And the United Auto Workers contract with the big three automakers expires at 11.59 p.m. Eastern tonight, Thursday night. And it looks as if there will be a strike. Do you have any inkling that there may be a last-minute deal? We're running out of time. (laughs) Well, the clock is ticking. It's hard to say. You can never really tell. And even if there isn't a deal, that doesn't necessarily mean that there'll be a strike right away. They could continue talking if they feel like that they're making any headway. But there's never been a simultaneous strike against all three major U.S. automakers. So that in itself is pretty unusual. Oh, this is historic. I mean, just the, the the way it's playing out, the negotiation itself, regardless of if there's a strike or not, they're working together. Uh, you have the big three, um, you know, uh, getting together, talking about new contracts. It it, it makes the union, the, the UAW, much more powerful. And also, if there is a strike, we're talking, you know, uh, 150,000 workers. Um, the interesting thing is that they might not be uh, striking in the way that we typically know of strikers that everybody kind of walks out because there's such a massive amount of workers involved across many different plants that uh, they're talking about strategic walkouts, uh, something that has been done in Europe uh, before where there's kind of a revolving, unpredictable schedule of workers that are that are um, working as as other workers in the UAW are striking. So it w- could really prove to be very powerful in the negotiations and really keep the companies, the big three, on their heels. So what the United Auto Workers Union is asking for is uh, clearly significant concessions from GM, Ford, and Stellantis. They want a 36% pay hike over four years, the restoration of cost of living increases. They want to bring back traditional pension plans and restore retiree health care coverage. So this, of course, is in the context of record profits on the part of the automakers, right? So the time is right as far as the UAW is concerned. 
to make a fair deal since the big three have been making pretty uh, That's right. They're having, uh, yeah. They're having soaring profits, by the way, soaring CEO pay. And I think it's important to put this in a historical context. These are workers and the workers who preceded them who have sacrificed time and time again during such negotiations over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. They have given up so much. I mean, we know this. We've talked about it, Ian, many times. This is a microcosm of all that has happened to workers in the United States over the last 50 years. Uh, Union density has eroded only less than 7% of private sector workers are unionized. We have had had a, a, a massive erosion of workers and workers' right to bargain collectively, even when they want to, even when they want to form and join unions, it's become impossible. So you know, this could be historic in a way that when we look back, this could be a big turning point. In, in the context of all the other actions that have been taking place, especially since the reopening of COVID, There's something broken in the U.S. labor market, and unions have to be involved in helping to fix it. So Senator Bernie Sanders will be at a rally on Friday evening in Detroit with Sean Fain, the head of the UAW, who's been leading this negotiations with the big three and is certainly a departure from his predecessor, who he accused of being too cosy with the auto executives. But Bernie Sanders has been very outspoken, essentially criticizing uh, the mainstream media. Just to quote from what Sanders just said, and of course he's the chair of the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee known as Mm -hmm. HELP. Sanders said, in the first half of 2023, the big three automakers made a combined 23 billion in profits, up 80% from the same time period last year. But if you're watching watching any corporate news coverage of the pending strike by 150,000 auto workers, you've heard more about the strike's potential negative effects on the economy and a litany of excuses why well by very well compensated CEOs just can't make a fair deal. You won't hear that last year the CEO of General Motors raked in about $29 million in total compensation. The CEO of Ford made approximately $21 million, and the CEO of Stellantis pocketed over $25 million. In fact, over the last four years, pay for those CEOs has increased by more than 40%. So there's some symmetry there, right? The UAW wants 36%, and the CEOs have been up uh, 40%. Yeah, and again, I think it's putting the context of the type of capitalism we have been practicing in the U.S. over the last 50 years that has really been negative upon negative for the average worker, where workers today, many are making less than their counterparts have, that were making 20, 30 years ago. Some people in these plants, their fathers and mothers worked in these plants and made more money after you account for inflation than they're making today, when the workers today are much more productive. But we do have this corporate power, and you can, you know, we know this because we uh, we see that they're more concerned with the shareholders and their own pay, as you just described, this increase significantly than they are in, in helping workers and communities thrive. It, it's long time; it's been a long time in the making that we've needed this type of readjustment. That's why we should pass the PRO Act, something Bernie Sanders 
talks a lot about, where we can get workers who actually want to form and join unions and who voted for unions that can actually get to a first contract without all these shenanigans and many of them illegal going on that businesses like Amazon and Walmart for decades have been breaking the backs of workers trying to unionize in unfair uh, uh, practices. Again, many of them that are illegal, some of them that are legal that need that the rules need to be changed. That's why there's, you know, a multi, you know, billion dollar industry that does nothing but break that these that these big corporations hire to make sure that they break the unions and the union drives. I think post COVID we're seeing a real readjustment in in how workers feel. They know now that they can have power. They don't have power individually. They can have power through unions, and that's what we're going to see in this negotiation because, yeah, the president, um, uh, Sean Fain, is not messing around here. I think that he is not going to be in the mood for, uh, you know, too many concessions and um, basically taking these contracts and improving them greatly because, again, you have to look not just even what these car dealers, these, these car big three are making, these automobile industries are making. But what has happened over the last 50 years? We've had the government bail them out. We have Biden investing right now in um, uh, transition to EVs. So they're using government taxpayer funds. And the workers need to enjoy some of those benefits. And they have been eroding, as I said, for decades. And I think the time is for the worker to to raise up. And I'm really looking forward to, you know, a historic situation, whatever transpires tonight at 1159. And as you've mentioned, uh, Sylvia, GM and Chrysler both declared bankruptcy in 2009 during the Great Recession. So when Sean Fain, who was interviewed on Monday on CNN by Jake Tapper, said, in the last four years, the price of cars went up 30%. CEO pay went up 40%. No one said a word. No one had any complaints about that. But God forbid the workers ask for their fair share. So my sense is, and I've been picketing Fox Studio as a member of the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild um, right. for some time now. Now, of course, it's now Disney. And all the cars that drive by on a busy street all honk in solidarity. So I think this, the, the general public are behind the auto workers as they appear to be behind the, the writers and actors. Yeah, I think that's right. We know from surveys that um, the sentiment towards unions, the positive sentiment towards unions is really, really high right now. Because people understand what we're talking about are the mechanisms by which inequality, vast and ever-increasing inequality in this country that has taken place over the last five decades. This is how it happens to, you know, to erode worker power, to make sure that workers are making less than their counterparts did, that CEO pay and the pay of those at the top and the, and, the, and the shareholder economy, worrying about shareholders more than you do your workers, is exactly what's taken place. And there are huge costs to, to the fact that all the, the, the workers are losing so much in wages and benefits over these decades. So they got to claw some of that back and hopefully get back on track so we have a much a more broadly shared economy, especially during the good times. So... The automakers uh, are now saying 
that they need to spend billions in transitioning to electric cars and that they can't afford these pay raises and these con- these concessions to the UAW. Now, how much is the government helping in these transitions, which have been pretty slow in coming, frankly, but the writing's been on the wall with the success of Tesla, but they still right. haven't been able to make cars that are more affordable because Tesla's in six figures to buy. So what's your sense of, of the validity of those arguments? Well, look, companies, you know, used to retool on a regular basis. That hasn't happened when you sit and rest on your laurels. And there is a transition happening. I know that that um, uh, the Biden administration has already, uh, I think, put forth about 15 or 16 billion dollars to help. I'm sure there'll be more coming. We want our auto industry to be successful and to make these transitions. So I think, you know, again, we're going to be using taxpayer money to get to get us there. And that's that might not be a quick process, but it will happen. And the workers have to be uh, the workers can't be the ones who take it on the chin while they try to retool and get um, get to new new vehicles that are better for the future, especially when the workers have been again, you know, sacrificing time and time again. Much of what they're asking for is just to make up for what they've lost over the last few decades. So do you think, though, that the auto manufacturers could move their plants? Uh, like, for example, Ford has a plant in Chihuahua, in Chihuahua, Mexico, it's also unionized, by the way, and the workers there just negotiated an 8.2% raise. But uh, there is a fear that they may move uh, their plants. Um, and also, what do you think will be the impact of a successful strike um, on the fact that that uh, BMW uh, and Mercedes and VW and others and other Japanese manufacturers have built auto plants in right-to-work southern states so who haven't unionized yet. But if the UAW is successful, won't that make it more likely that these southern auto plants might start unionizing? That could definitely be an outcome. That could definitely happen. I'm sure that they're thinking about that. That is the reason why the plants are located where they're located down south is because they didn't want to have unionized workers. But again, we've seen a big shift in the attitude uh, of unionization and the, the, the right to collectively bargain and exercise your right to do that in the United States. And we know that it's been an uphill battle. The system has been broken. We need to get a stronger Department of Labor uh, to help back these efforts. But as, as we've seen, especially after the teacher strikes in 2018 and 2019, uh, that, was the, that was the largest strikes, more people on strike than had, been strike, than had done so in 35 years at the time. And this year, uh, especially after the opening of COVID, we're seeing a lot, more, a lot more activity. And I think that this is going to be, again, a, a time when we might look back and it could be a very much a historic period. What happens in 2023 when the UAW Big Three decided to fight back? So do we have any inkling, though, of of whether this is going to be a long strike? I mean, striking all three, which has never happened before, 
would stretch the resources of the UAW, particularly their strikes funds, wouldn't it? Well, yes, uh, of course, but the, 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 the idea of doing things differently has taken hold where it might not be the case that they're all just going to walk out. That, that, that may not be their strategy. It doesn't sound like it will be. I mean, if you have a strategy of this kind of revolving walkout at different times, different places, different work, workers, I mean, some, some workers are going to stay on the job. And, you know, but it's still going to be able to put pressure on the companies who may not be able to plan because they will not know ahead of time what the union has decided to do day to day or week to week. And that'll also help with the uh, with with some workers keeping keeping their wages. So, um, you know, they have a lot of power here that um, it will, will depend on what they have to do, if they can come to agreements or not, and how fast they can come to agreements. We just have no, we just don't know. And if, if talks remain, um, you know, if they're progressing along and there's a reason to stay at the table, they'll stay at the table. We just don't know. It can, you know, it's, it's hard to know what's going to happen um, just because the contract runs out tonight. Well, Sylvia Allegretto, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Great talking to you, Ian. Well, thank you, Sylvia. And again, I've been speaking with Sylvia Allegretto, who is a labor economist at University of California, Berkeley, and a senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. She's co-authored several editions of The State of Working America, and her research interests include long-term unemployment, family budgets, teacher pay, public employees' compensation, low-wage labor markets, inequality, and minimum wages. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared